Well, good morning. morning. Quick show of hands. Uh, How many of you are familiar with this book, Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss? I see quite a few hands going up. This was one of my favorites uh, to read to our children when we had young children. Now our youngest is 10, and they don't do story time as much as they used to. Um, But this one got read so much that we've had to tape the binding, and uh, it's getting loose and worn, you know. Uh, One of my favorite things to do in this season of life, though, is when they say something that reminds me of this book, I'll rattle off a couple pages, because I basically got it memorized, and they're like, we know, Dad, we know. But as I was preparing today's message, uh, a page in particular came to mind. It's not necessarily my favorite page, but it does fit the message well. And uh, it's talking about a place called The Waiting Place. Maybe you're familiar with this page. It looks like this, a bunch of people waiting. And the waiting place is for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Some of you have given up, (laughs) right? I'm close. But everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, waiting for wind to fly to kite, or waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Now, I wonder, have you ever been to the waiting place spiritually? We all know what it is to wait, but there's a little different feel to the waiting place when we're waiting for something spiritually speaking. We're waiting for an answered prayer or a breakthrough in some area of our lives. We're waiting for healing or we're waiting for the grief to subside just enough that we can finally feel like we've got our bearings. Maybe you're waiting for a calling to present itself or to be clarified. Maybe you're waiting for an opportunity for the next season, for a resolution to some ongoing conflict or to reconciliation in a broken relationship. The waiting place can be a tough place And the longer you sit in the waiting place, the more you can start to wonder, is it ever going to change? Is it ever going to end? Is it really worth it to keep waiting? Now, I had not originally planned to preach a message on waiting, but I saw sort of this little mini-series develop over the last couple of weeks in our series, God Is. You see, two weeks ago, I preached a message titled, God Is Aware of Your Struggles. And last week, Pastor Keith preached a phenomenal message on God being a good, good father. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Hagar with the bottom line that God always sees, God always hears, God is always with us. We see that in that story. We see her wondering if God is aware of her struggle and having an encounter with God that makes it crystal clear that God is aware of her struggle, that God does see her, that God does hear her, that God is with her. In fact, God even says, name your child, God hears. So that every time you look at that child, every time you call him in for dinner, God hears, come in. And Hagar responds to that by giving a new name to God. A new, first time it appears in Scripture, the God who sees me. She knows that God sees her. She knows that God hears her. She knows that God is with her. Then last week, Pastor Keith preached a message on the prodigal God. 
The prodigal father, you maybe heard that story called the prodigal son. Yes, the son was prodigious in his spending, but the God in that story, the father in that story was prodigious, lavish, extravagant in his love, in his patience. And we see him waiting for his son. One of my favorite points in that message was the way that Pastor Keith underscored, while he was still a long ways off, while the son was still a long ways off, the father saw him and ran to meet him. And so we have God being aware of our struggle. We have God waiting for us. And I felt like we have to preach a message on this reality that God is worth waiting on. God is worth waiting on. He waits for us, and he is worth waiting on, even when it's hard. Last week, our good, good father showed us through that story, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal God, that you are worth waiting for, that you are worth watching for. Whether you're the wayward son that has run away, you're worth watching for in your return. Or if you're the older son who wouldn't go in, our good, good father says you're worth seeking out. And he went out to his son and he brought him in. Either way, God is waiting for us. He says we are worth waiting for. And we're going to look at at an Old Testament story or an Old Testament book. We'll look pretty much at the whole thing, but don't worry, it's short. (laughs) It's the book of Habakkuk. And it shows us quite clearly that God is worth waiting for. Even when we don't understand what he's doing or why he's doing it. He's worth waiting for. He's worth waiting on. And I borrow some of this content just up front. I never want to plagiarize. Some of these ideas come from Tim Keller's sermon that I'd heard on this subject that just resonated so deeply, a few of the points so profoundly. I'm not necessarily going to call everyone out, but I just want you to know that that that's a message, and you could probably find this message if you'd like to hear his version of it. It has five points instead of three, so you might be thankful that that we have the the Mark Sundstrom version this morning. But he looks at Habakkuk chapter 2, and this message that we're going to do today, we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And that one takes a little longer to find. So I'll give you the page number if you want to borrow one of our Bibles. Uh, They're in the seats in front of you. It's page 1458. Otherwise, you get to Matthew in the New Testament and go back a handful of pages. Habakkuk's a small minor prophet. And it's an interesting book. It's unique among the minor prophets in that it never addresses Israel specifically. Most of the prophets spoke to Israel or they spoke to the nation of Judah and they took the, the message that God had given them, the burden that God had given them, and then they shared that. And it was usually a fairly unpopular message. But the book of Habakkuk is unique, and maybe you're a Habakkuk fan. We really don't know how to say it. The, the Hebrew phonetical uh, pronunciation is a little ambiguous. Um, I'm going to say Habakkuk. You don't have to change if you don't want to change. It, it's, it's debatable. But we know that Habakkuk has several cycles of interactions with God. He addresses his complaint to God. He makes a request and a complaint to God. God answers him. And then he has another. And God answers him again. And then we get to see Habakkuk, Habakkuk, whatever. (laughs) Said I was going to do it one way and then I'm alternating. Who knows? But we see him kind of come to some conclusions. And what we do know, even though he doesn't necessarily address Israel specifically, this book... And this theme in Scripture teaches us how to live in evil times. How many of you would say we're living in evil times? More than a few. 
We see moral decay. We see the economy getting rocky. We see a number of things happening that we don't necessarily like. And after decades of relative prosperity, sociologists have pointed to the fact that when you go through several decades of prosperity, that becomes almost an entitlement. People think, oh, it's just, it'll get better next year. And we see now that markets can be manipulated and things, you know, the dollar sign can be manipulated. And typically when money's going all right, people are going all right. But when money starts to get rocky, the undercurrents present themselves. And there was a time when people didn't think it would be better next year. People figured it would actually get worse next year and the year after that and the year after that. Following the Great Depression, sociologists have seen the general tenor was, it's not going to be better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think that's why books like Habakkuk, books like the book of Job, Habakkuk has been called just a condensed version of the book of Job. So many of the themes are very, very similar. The Psalms of Lament, you see the people of God wrestling with God in the midst of evil times and learning how do we live in evil times. And there are some things in those Psalms of Lament that I'm like, why did God allow that into Scripture? (laughs) Why did He allow that kind of complaint to be made? Even in Habakkuk here, there's some complaints that are levied against God, and you think, well, God could have just snuffed that out. But I believe He left it there for a reason. He wants us to know that he wants relationship with us. He invites our questions. He invites us to come to him and to wrestle with him. That's so much better than just shrugging our shoulders and walking away. See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's feeling nothing at all. It's just shrugging your shoulders and walking away. And we see Habakkuk wrestling with God. In fact, there are multiple cycles. The first cycle is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We see Habakkuk make his complaint in verses 2 through 4. And he's asking questions like, how long, O Lord, and why is this happening? Do you not hear? Do you not see? Can't you see the violence and the injustice that is taking place all around us? Anybody prayed a prayer like that recently? God, don't you see what's going on? Aren't you going to do something? That's basically Habakkuk's first complaint. And God answers him in verses 5 through 11. And this Cliff's Notes version of that is God says, basically, I'm already on it. <laughs> I do see. I am aware. And you're not going to like this next part, but it's actually going to get worse before it gets better. In fact, I'm raising up the Babylonians, this evil nation, to come and to punish Israel's injustice. I see the injustice. And punishment is coming. So that invites a second cycle of a complaint from Habakkuk, an answer from God. And that second cycle takes you through the end of chapter 1, verses 12, through the end of the chapter, and then starts in chapter 2 and goes through verse 20. But Habakkuk's complaint is right there from verse 12 of chapter 1 to verse 1 of chapter 2. And it starts out with faith, and then it kind of dips down into this doubt and disillusionment that Habakkuk feels over this circumstance, but it, it ends on a high note with faith affirming God. And then we see God's response. And so in verse 12, we see God responding, or Habakkuk responding to God, saying, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Aren't you from everlasting? Aren't you the everlasting God that we just sang about? And so there's some questioning there, but he reaffirms, and this is where the faith comes in, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He's basically saying, your way is good. I don't have to like it, but I believe you are good, and I believe your way is good, even when I don't understand it. And God responds to him 
And the balance of his complaint is basically, how are you going to use the even more wicked to punish the wickedness of your people? But God's response, we're going to focus on verses 2 through 4, because in this short passage, Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4, we see the tail end of Habakkuk's response. We see God's initial response to Habakkuk, and we can learn a lot in there about how to wait on the Lord. So let's read this passage together, and then let's call out at least three things that we see God saying, Habakkuk saying, teaching us on how to wait on the Lord. Habakkuk says at the conclusion of his second complaint, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For the still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the king of Babylon here. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, incidentally, what follows, God has a few more words for the king of Babylon, and they're not very good. And then verses 6 through 20 are woes against Babylon, this wicked nation that's going to be used to punish the, the wicked nation of Israel. But we're focusing on this passage because in this passage we can see clearly three ways to wait on the Lord. That we would wait obediently, that we would wait patiently, and that we would wait joyfully. Now there are others in there. Tim found two more. (laughs) But we can learn a lot about how to wait upon the Lord. And the song that we sang this morning about the everlasting God says that strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. As we wait upon the Lord, strength wells up within us. So we have to know how to do this. First, we wait faithfully. We see this in verse 1. We see this in Habakkuk's response. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself at the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's saying, I'm going to take my stand. I'm going to station myself. I'm going to wait actively. Now, a tower or a watch post was an elevated position in the city wall or in the ramparts are sometimes called. It's an elevated position, and the elevation was really helpful because you could see things coming from a long ways off if you were up in the watchtower. And typically, there would be military personnel stationed in the watchtower in order to watch and to see what was coming so that there would be a little more time to respond. You see, when you can see it coming, if it's an enemy... You can drop the gate. You can rally the rest of the soldiers. You can make ready for them. If it's a storm, you can send out the call so that people will will get to shelter and will batten down the hatches, so to speak. If it's an embassy from a foreign nation that is friendly to you, you can roll out the red carpet. You can have a, a parade for this embassy that is coming. Whatever the case, a little extra time is helpful. And Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to station myself in an elevated position. I'm going to watch. I'm going to be able to see things coming. And I think this underscores the importance of perspective. To see the bigger picture. To look around and to not just be in our narrow little areas, but to get to an elevated position. To go up and to watch for God. To watch for his response. To wait for his response. Paul says in Romans 18, I'm sorry, 8, 18. Romans 8, 18. He says, I do not consider 
the sufferings of this present age to even be worthy of comparison to the glory that awaits us. He's got an elevated position. He's not wallowing in his suffering. He's not wallowing in self-pity. He's saying, yes, this is tough. This is hard. I'm pretty miserable right now. We don't know when he, what was going on. When he, we know he was imprisoned many times. We know he was beaten and left for dead. We know he had some kind of a condition with his eye. He knew a lot of suffering. He knew what it was like to have people come up behind him and actively seek to undo the good work that he had been doing. He suffered a lot. And yet he said all of that. That suffering is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that we await. He had perspective. He had his eyes on God and not on himself and his circumstances. He meditated on the glory that was awaiting him rather than just navel-gazing in his own misery. He was waiting on the Lord. Just like Habakkuk, waiting on the Lord is not a passive exercise. We are to wait actively. We are to wait faithfully. He says, I will station myself He's saying, I'm not going to leave my post. He's going to wait obediently. Now, we think of this word wait, and what typically comes to mind, at least for me, and I think for most people, is is to wait in the waiting place. You notice all the people in the waiting place? They're waiting for something. Waiting for a train to come or a bus to go. They're waiting for their hair to grow. They're waiting for, they're waiting for, they're waiting for. They're just sitting. Everybody in the picture is sitting. They're not actively waiting. This is not the way that Habakkuk is talking about waiting. He's going to go up. He's going to watch. He's going to get perspective. He's going to wait faithfully. And this is where the root word actually points more to a waiter or a waitress. You ever had a good one? We had a phenomenal waitress yesterday. We went to this lunch. It was a great lunch. The food was amazing, and the waitress was amazing. She didn't wait for us to ask for anything. She waited on us time and time again. She was always there. She was present. She didn't wait for us to ask for more water. She filled our drinks. She didn't wait for us to ask if there was a dessert menu. She said, would you like something sweet to go on with your meal? She was a wonderful waitress, and she waited on us. She didn't just wait for us and then respond. I think we can learn a lot about waiting on the Lord, waiting upon the Lord and renewing our strength. In generations past, the wealthy might have a lady in waiting right? This was a lady who literally waited around in case her mistress needed something and then would do that thing for them. It has to do with service. And we can wait upon the Lord as a servant of the Lord, or we can just simply wait for Him to do something. There's a big difference. And I think it's interesting that too often while we're waiting for, we get tired of waiting. And we stop doing the things that make it easier to wait upon the Lord. We stop reading our Bibles. We stop praying. We stop going to worship. We stop serving. We say things like, you know, I'm just really not getting anything out of it anymore. The message didn't feed me. I didn't like the songs we sang. They didn't sing the songs that I wanted. They, you know, they didn't ask this or they didn't ask that. They, I just, I'm not getting anything out of it. Can you imagine the court-martial of a soldier being tried for desertion, for leaving his post? And they ask him, why'd you do it? And he says, well, I just wasn't really getting anything out of it. It's not the point. It's not the point. In fact, John Newton, the famous pastor and hymn writer, wrote the the hymn Amazing Grace, told the story, reportedly, that somebody from his congregation came to him and said, yeah, I've quit praying. I, I just wasn't really getting anything out of it. And John said, well, I'm afraid you're not going to get anything out of not praying either, (laughs) right? You know, we go from bad to worse. Or even beyond that, we're more tempted when we stop doing those things to do things that we know aren't right 
while we're in the waiting place. And we justify that. Well, God didn't come through for me, so what am I waiting for? And we're tempted to look for an escape. We're tempted to look for something that will ease the pain and disappointment that we feel. And so whether that's food or whether that's pornography or whether that's some activity that we know isn't right, we justify it. Well, God's absent. He's not paying any attention. What's the big deal? And this reveals that ultimately sometimes we're more interested in the things than we are in God himself. We're more interested in waiting for God to do something for us than we are in waiting on God because of who he is. Now, Habakkuk has been called a little book of Job. It's a condensed version. It's a much easier read, and it is much shorter. My banding together groups, most of us are doing the fourth New Old Testament option. The fourth Old Testament option is the wisdom literature. So we started the book of Job in June, and we read two chapters a day for three weeks. It's a long book. And I was not looking forward to it. I will just be very honest. I will stand before you. I, I was not looking forward to Job this year. And yet I was so pleasantly surprised day after day after day. I have never written an entire page 21 days in a row, but I did this time through Job. I just saw something every single day that touched me deeply, spoke to me, encouraged me, strengthened me. And so I would encourage you to read the whole book of Job, but if you don't have the stomach for that, Habakkuk's a good good condensed version. But there's something cool that happens, and we don't necessarily know why, and I can't get into that. That's a whole other sermon. But in Job 1 and 2, there's this conversation that we know about that Job doesn't between Satan and God. And Satan asks this question, and it's such a powerful question. He says, does Job serve God for nothing, or does Job serve God for the benefits? Look at him. He's got it all. He's got more possessions. He's got a great family. He's got wealth. You take all that away, I'll bet you a nickel he's going to curse you to your face. That's basically the conversation. They didn't have nickels back then. But that's what's going on, and and. God is confident that Job will stand the test. And I think this underscores this this reality that too often we start with God looking for things. We want blessing. We want his favor in our life. We want salvation. We want forgiveness. We want a relationship to be restored. As a pastor, I see it over and over again. And I don't think God has a problem with this. I really don't. I think he's very patient with us coming to him first for things. Not for himself, but for something that he gives something that he will bless us with in some way. And that's an okay place to start, but it's a terrible place to finish in your relationship with God, just wanting him for his stuff. How many of you would tolerate that in your own life? People that just want you for your stuff. Imagine you have wealth and you have connections, you have influence, and somebody comes to you and they're very interested in you. Maybe it's a member of the opposite sex when you're relatively young, and this is a good thing. And they want everything to do with you because of the wealth and the power and the influence and the connections that you have, and yet at some point there's a quick change and the wealth is gone and the influence is gone and the connections are gone and they drop you like a hot rock how would you feel not very good right you'd be angry you'd be right to be angry and I wonder sometimes how God feels when we come to him for stuff and we get stuff from him and then the stuff seems to dry up in our perspective of it and we walk away we're no longer interested in him for who he is we're just interested in his stuff Job comes to a place where he learns to love God for who God is, nothing else. Nothing else. And we have to get there too. And Habakkuk, we'll see, gets there too. Spoiler alert. So we have to wait faithfully. Secondly, we see in this passage, we have to wait patiently. We have to wait patiently. We can learn to 
to wait patiently from God's response to Habakkuk in verse 3. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's talking about the vision that he just gave him in chapter 1 about what's going to happen with Babylon. It's going to take a little while, but just wait for it. Keep waiting for it. Wait patiently. We don't know when, but we do know that. It might occur more slowly than desired. But God's timing is always perfect. He says himself, if it seems slow, wait for it. Wait. Be patient. When we're waiting for, it's all about patience. When we're waiting on, it's all about service. Do you see that? We're both. We're doing both here. We're waiting on the Lord, and strength is arising as we continue to serve, as we continue to be faithful. That's waiting faithfully. Now we're waiting patiently. Waiting for God to move has to do with patience. It has to do with staying with it. If it seems slow, wait for it. Be patient. We don't wait for buses much, but the people at the waiting place do, right? And in big cities, people are dependent upon public transportation. They might have to wait for a bus. Maybe the bus gets behind. You've got to play that game. Are we going to wait for it? Or are we going to walk? Are we going to get a cab? Or are we going to call an Uber? Nobody gets cabs anymore. We had this experience. We... Uh, maybe a little short-sighted, I don't know, but we decided to go to Zion National Park on the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. We were not alone, <laughs> okay? Like, it was crawling with people, you know? And uh, we were waiting for the bus to take us. There's a shuttle system that would take us back close to where our van was parked, and we were waiting, and we were waiting. And we weren't quite sure, you know, what the interval was, and we know it's about a mile, uh, to where we need to go, and after a day of hiking in uh, National Park, that was probably going to take us 20, 25 minutes, so we're trying to decide, you know, how long was it between the, oh, I don't know, we weren't here, so we're asking all these questions. We decided to wait, and it took about 15, 20 minutes for the bus to come, and we were glad that we had waited, because it was hot, and we would have had to walk uphill, and we didn't save a lot of time, but we saved some energy by waiting. Maybe you've been to a doctor's office, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and it's further and further behind, and maybe you have another appointment or another thing, or you're missing work, or whatever the case is, and you're trying to wait. Am I going to be patient? Am I going to keep waiting, or am I going to go and try to reschedule this thing, knowing it might be months before I can get back in? That's, that's the tension about waiting for, and God says, wait for it. It was funny, we were uh, at another couple in the church, we were at their home last Sunday afternoon, and we had been together for some time, and, and their four-year-old son had another activity that he was eager to participate in. <laughs> and he wanted mom and dad to participate in it with him. And we were doing that thing on the front door, and then the front lawn, and then and it seems like an eternity for a four-year-old, but oh yeah, and then forgot, oh, I was going to mention this. And, and he kept saying, can we go do the thing, you know? And, and at one point, mom just very, very graciously said, oh honey, you just have to be patient. And he said, I don't like to be patient. <laughs> and I thought, neither do I, buddy. Neither do I. None of us do. It's not fun to wait for, especially when you're not quite sure when it's going to happen. Is this, the preacher ever going to leave? Am I ever going to get to do the thing? Whether it's something big or something small, we don't like to be patient. But patience is a beautiful thing. Scripture talks so much about patience. And one of the points that I love so much about Tim Keller's message was that patience comes as an act of humility. It comes as an act of humility. James says something very interesting in his letter to the New Testament church. Uh, he says in chapter 4, Why do you say tomorrow we'll get up and we'll go to this or that town and we'll buy and sell and make a profit and live there for a year? You don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. And his point is, he says, you should say if the Lord wills that we hold all of our plans in open hands. 
We don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. We can make plans, but we surrender those plans to the Lord. And I think the best example of this in my life was probably 2020, March, April, May. (laughs) I had all kinds of plans. There were some really cool plans, plans that I was sure God was going to bless. We had an invite a friend Sunday. We had a night of prayer. We had all kinds of things lined up. This was before we were doing night of prayer on a regular basis, and we were struggling. Are we going to have a night of prayer or not? We ended up deciding, you know, to encourage people to pray at home because at that time there was so much uncertainty. There were so few things we knew. I had conferences I was going to go to. I had people I was going to see. I was even going to get to go to a Cubs game. That doesn't happen a lot in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And one by one by one, every single one of those plans was gone. I had to surrender those plans to the Lord. And I've learned an important lesson about surrendering my plans to the Lord. It's a radical humility. And Keller talks about this term, assumed omniscience. And it's such a powerful term. It's this idea that we know what's best. We know what's good, what's bad, what's awful. We know what should be happening. Maybe it's because we're created in the image of God. I don't know. But this assumed omniscience comes to us. And we think we know what should be happening. And Habakkuk thinks he knows what should be happening. Don't you see the injustice, Lord? Aren't you going to deal with it? Certainly not that way. Certainly you're not going to raise up an even more evil nation to come and punish us. He thinks he knows. And Tim Keller says, please lay down the melancholy burden of assumed omniscience. It is so. It is such a relief when you do. It's a melancholy burden to think we know what should be happening. Instead, we can pray the serenity prayer. God, grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things I can't change, which is most of it. The courage to do the things I should. Not necessarily just the things I want to. Maybe I don't want to do them. Maybe I do want to do them. doesn't matter. Just help me to have the courage to do the things I should and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a powerful prayer. It's a prayer of acceptance. It's a prayer of courage. It's a prayer of wisdom. It rejects the idea of assumed omniscience. It has the patience and the humility to cast a vote for our own growth and development in the midst of what we're waiting for. Did you catch that? That waiting, waiting for God, is an opportunity for growth. James talks about this at the beginning of his letter, right out of the gates, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of you would like to be mature and complete, not lacking anything? Say yes. Yes. What's the way there, according to James? It's suffering. It's trials of many kinds. Because you know, if you look backwards... If you go up to the watchtower and you look around and you can see, yeah, I went through a similar season. (laughs) And you hear people talk about this all the time. I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade what I have now as a result of it for anything in the world. In fact, speaking of Tim Keller, many of you may know he passed away in the last month at 72 years old. And you think, gosh, if anybody, we would have loved to keep hearing from them for a few more years. He died of pancreatic cancer. And he gave an interview that somebody shared with me shortly before his death. And he said, you know, one of the things that, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that it has transformed our prayer life. And while we never would have asked for, for pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis, we wouldn't trade the prayer life we have now for anything in the world. It brought them nearer and closer to God because they decided to wait on him and to wait for him with patience. Paul says something very similar in Romans 3, 3 through 5. He says, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his spirit in our hearts, or his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. We know these things if we can look back. We know that patience leads to character and character leads to hope, and hope does not disappoint. And so perhaps you've heard it said before that pressure can turn a lump of coal into a diamond, something of minimal value into something of infinite value. Heat is what is used to burn off the dross of precious metals so that they become of greater and greater value. Pressure and heat come together, and while they're suffering and there's difficulty, it leads to character, it leads to hope, and hope does not disappoint. And the turning point in the book of Job, perhaps, for Job himself and his experience of extreme suffering comes in chapter 23, verse 10. He says to his miserable friends, he calls them miserable friends, he says, he, God, knows the way that I take. I don't. But God does. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. He has faith. He's waiting patiently. He's waiting for God. So we need to wait faithfully, continue serving God. We need to wait patiently, waiting for God, and we can wait joyfully. We see this in verse 4, that we would wait joyfully. And you kind of have to get through to the second half of the verse, because the first half of the verse is talking about the king of Babylon. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But here's the solid gold. But the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. It's one of the most important phrases, most important verses, one of the most important themes in the Bible. It's quoted multiple times in the New Testament, in Romans 1.17, in Galatians 3.11, in Hebrews 10.38 and 39. This point is driven home repeatedly that the just, the righteous, will live by faith. And they knew, Paul knew, the writer of Hebrews knew something that Habakkuk didn't know, that Job didn't know. They knew the gospel. They knew that God came. That he lived a perfect, sinless life. That he paid the penalty for every sin forever so that anyone who would come to faith through him would come and live eternally by faith. Not just get through this season, not just get through these circumstances, but that the righteous would live by faith and they would live forever by faith. Here and now and there and then. We have Jesus. That's why we speak his name. There's power in the name of Jesus. It's the full revelation of God. We see in Jesus the mind and heart of God clearer than we see it anywhere else. And we know that we can wait for him. We can wait on him if we focus on what he has done for us. If we focus on what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, we can endure anything. That's what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he said in Hebrews 12.1, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. That's the hope that we have. It's in Jesus. And there's a powerful place in, Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he's telling them, you must be ready for my return. He wants his servants, he wants his disciples, he wants his followers to wait faithfully and wait patiently, as we've just said. But then he says something in verse 37 of Luke chapter 12 that is mind-blowing. He says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes, waiting actively, waiting patiently, waiting faithfully. I tell you the truth, he, the master, will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Wow. Wow. We know that he will. Because we know that he already has. We can see him washing feet the night of his betrayal. 
We can see him wrestling with God and surrendering to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can see him nailed to a cross saying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. We can see him waiting on us, serving us, making a way for us, reconciling us to God. We can see him waiting on us in the past, and we know that he's promised to wait on us in the future. And that can give us the strength to wait on him now. To wait with hope and to wait with joy because we know it will be worth it. We know it will be worth it. He's promised it will be worth it. He is good. And his word is good. And that's our bottom line today. Jesus has waited on us. We can wait on him. We can wait faithfully. We can wait patiently. And we can even wait joyfully. We don't have to have sour faces, ho-humming it through life. We can wait joyfully in the midst of struggles. You've seen people do this. It really makes an impression, doesn't it? When there's genuine joy in the midst of terrible circumstances, it's a tremendous testimony. And we see in the conclusion, I told you this story has a happy ending. We see in the conclusion of Habakkuk at the end, chapter 3, verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. It's the final passage in the book. It's eerily similar to Job 42, verses 2 through 6, right at the end of the book of Job. They say very similar things. And interestingly enough, for Habakkuk at this point, nothing has changed, and yet everything has changed. He says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. He's talking about God's voice. Rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. You've promised, God. You've promised that after they are your instrument to punish us, you're going to punish them as well. And he doesn't stop there. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture come in verse 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, Will the flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He says he'll quietly wait to see deliverance. He says he will rejoice in the midst of all of these calamities of verse 17. And he will take joy. And he chooses to focus on the salvation. This is before Christ. This blows me away. <laughs> he chooses to focus on salvation of God in his life and to focus on the strength that will come from the Lord. It will rise up as we wait upon the Lord, as we wait faithfully, as we wait patiently, as we wait joyfully. And we can. And it will be worth it. I promise you. I can't oversell this and underdeliver because God has promised and he has shown us that he is trustworthy and we can count on him. And so I want to encourage you as we move into a time of response, these altars are open. We didn't talk about the altars a whole lot for a while, but they're open. They're open every week. They're open throughout the service. They're never really closed. And if you want to respond in faith, if you want to come and intercede for somebody, if you want to come and make a commitment to the Lord or invite him into your season of struggle, you can come down to the altars. If you come to these middle two altars, we'll take that as a cue that you'd like somebody to put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you or pray over you or pray for you. If you go to these outside two, we'll take that as a silent hint that you'd rather just pray alone, and that's just fine. If you want to get up and you want to make a commitment by writing a 
writing it out on a slip of paper over by that cross and rolling it up and sticking it onto that cross. I'd encourage you to do that. These moments are important moments. They're holy moments. When we respond to what we've heard from God, whether that's for ourselves or that's for somebody else, whatever you do, don't just go to lunch. God is in these moments. And I encourage you to make room for him to do whatever he wants to do in these next few moments. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are always with us, always for us. We're so thankful that you are the God of the mountaintops, you are God of the valley. You are God of everything in between. And that you are active in the waiting. And we pray, God, that as we wait, we would not just passively wait for, but we would patiently wait with expectancy of what you're going to do, that we would actively wait upon you, that we would continue to serve, that we continue to lean in, that we would continue to approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we would read your word, we would apply your word to our lives. We would grow in the waiting. We would grow in character and in perseverance and in hope. So wherever we are, Lord, whatever you're saying to us, may we respond in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray.